0: Good morning, everyone. So I thought what might be helpful is to actually unpack a bit why financial failure might occur in the first place, because I think often we leap to solutions maybe before um, diagnosing the problem first. Then I will talk a bit about and um, what are some of the solutions and then finally just a few reflections on what the future might hold so what drives um, financial failure? Well, the thing that springs to everyone's <laughs> mind when you ask that question, and this was the number one issue um, raised by the National Audit Office in their 2006 report, poor management and inefficient operations. And the NAO said financial failure is inseparable from wider organisational failure and they picked out three things that they thought were key to this: the quality of leadership, not only from the CEO but the board as a whole, and how um, the non-exec directors worked as well as the exec directors, a lack of board cohesion, compounded by high turnover of board members, and I think that is a significant issue within the NHS. And they also picked up the board's eye being off the ball e.g. through merger or large building projects or indeed reconfiguration of services. And of course it is those projects we often bring to bear on services and organisations that are failing, which is quite interesting, so potentially creating a mutually reinforcing feedback loop there. But then there's some other issues which were actually brought out by our colleague Keith Palmer, who actually I was hoping to see in the audience, who's down on the attendance list today. Keith wrote a really excellent report back in 2005 on financial failure and unpicked some things that I think are not um, talked about maybe enough. First of all, he highlighted that with a national tariff based on average unit cost, this is actually um, particularly disadvantageous for smaller trusts because even a small efficient trust is likely to incur a, defi- a deficit compared to a larger efficient trust. And interestingly, Monitor is now investigating this as part of their work on small hospitals, so I'm really pleased to see that they've clocked that that might be a significant issue. The other thing he picked up was legacy costs. And again, um, so this is things like PFI, things that actually, however much you ramp down your activity, you can't affect these costs. So that is a significant issue for trusts. The DH has actually done work in that area, and we have support coming out to trust, and it was something that was part of the solution in South London. Um, But there are still trusts around the country, and one that I'm a Ned of myself, which have PFI schemes that don't get support. And then finally, something which I think is incredibly important and barely talked about, something that um, Keith described as stranded capacity. And he pointed out that as payment by results is an activity-based system, If you face a reduction in demand as a hospital, then your capacity utilisation, your inherent unit costs as a trust, rise. And in a cash-limited NHS with fixed prices, the total volume of activity that commissioners can purchase is fixed, so net losers aren't able to act to improve that capacity utilisation. so Because there is just no more money to pay for extra services. So part of the existing capacity will sit there underused, And Keith called that stranded capacity. And I think as in a service, we don't pay nearly enough attention to that issue. And often when we reconfigure services, we actually compound problems by the sites that services are being called off. We don't actually fully pull them off because of the political payoffs that are made in those smaller sites. And I think there is a significant question as what are the financial risks created by the care closer to home policy? Then there are a couple of more issues that Keith didn't raise in his report, um, one of which was raised in the NAO report, and that was clinical engagement and the degree of clinical engagement and the way that that can um, lead to issues within a trust, and I certainly would um, identify that from my own experience in the NHS. And then, of course, last but not least, something that wasn't even on the horizon when Keith wrote his report, or indeed the NAO wrote theirs really, the Nicholson Challenge. The scale now of financial challenge that all trusts are going to face, compounded really by the Better Care Fund and many are identifying 2015 as a, a financial cliff edge that it is very hard to see how any trust is going to get through unscathed. So I would pose the question then that if the trusts that are um, have failed recently are about to fail, have we really understood why they're failing? Because actually the problems are manifold and not, not just straightforward. So what are the options for managing failure? Well, the one that the NHS has used um, often old is non-recurrent non-recur- financial support, so giving trusts a bailout and just hoping that sort of over time things will ease off and they'll sort themselves out. Of course, that doesn't... Really, sort things out. There's turnaround. We had a a very significant um, round of turnaround in 2005 6 after the last sort of financial squeeze. I sat in an NHS (coughs) organisation, as did somebody else in the audience, when this was um, going on. It's not a pleasant experience, it's quite a disempowering experience. I didn't feel that it left us as an organisation with a great legacy of um, financial and other organisational fitness but i 'm sure that will vary organization to organization there 's merger, so um, wedding a non financially <coughs> viable organization with one that is financially viable and it 's interesting for the work that i 'm doing on failure. One of the person I interviewed described this as a shotgun wedding organized by mandarins um, and there 's not a great history of success as we know in this area. most mergers do not succeed. And they, in order to succeed, you have to put a huge amount of resource and investment into them, not least of which into cultural change. There's franchise. We've tried franchise once um, here with Hinchingbrook. Maybe not so much a shotgun wedding, but being put out of foster care. <laughs> but um, again, I think after some initial huge optimism about that as a solution, it's proving to be quite challenging. And I think I would argue that had it did it, they really... Um, get underneath some of the structural issues that uh, might have been there which actually however great an organisational lead you might have um, are not going to resolve. And then last but not least of course the failure regime. We've had one go of it in South London and and Matthew led that and we've just had another experiment under the monitor hat in mid-staffs. They're due to send their report in in the middle of December so we'll see what comes out of that. The failure regime was designed to bring a rapid solution to um, the problem of failure. And, of course, that's one thing that doesn't seem to have been the outcome from either of those experiments. Even mid-staffs, I think, they even if their um, proposals are supported, there's at least two to three years before they would be enacted. So that leaves those organisations for a very significant period of time in quite a challenged governance position because, of course, what happens when the failure regime is enacted, is that the board is removed, the accountable officer shifts to the TSA, and effectively the traditional lines of accountability and leadership go. And I think that puts a huge pressure, not only on the the TSA, but a huge pressure on the organisation, and is a very punishing experience for those in the organisation. And it's also not cheap. And I think that having those prolonged periods without resolution can magnify those costs. So what would make a good failure regime? Well, I think clearly the answer is one that avoids failure in the first place. We absolutely need to be in there early identifying problems and trying to get underneath some of these structural issues, though given the Nicholson challenge, that could be easier said than done. And just a couple of points on the future as I close Um, What might be the impact of CQC? We have quality failure and now being able to trigger the failure regime. But actually, could that remedy then drive financial failure in itself and um, trusts find themselves between a rock and a hard place? And I suppose the overriding issue for me is the scale of potential financial failure ahead as we head into really choppy financial waters.